Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. When the 45th President of the United States gets down to work on January 21st, 2017, the new Commander-in-Chief will face life-or-death decisions that will shape America's role in the Middle East for years to come. In this podcast series, Washington Institute scholars explore those historic challenges. As former high-level officials in Democratic and Republican administrations, our experts know the issues, the stakes, the leaders, and the players on the ground. Join us as we explore the Middle East 2017 challenges and choices. The trend we have is that the Assad regime and President Assad himself is going to hold on smiling as the best option in a field of uh, different players, which are all of which are unpalatable to the United States and its allies. Today, we'll hear from Syria expert Andrew Tabler, the Martin J. Gross Fellow at the Washington Institute. Andrew was a founder and editor-in-chief of Syria's first private English-language magazine and is author of the book In the Lion's Den, an eyewitness account of Washington's battle with Syria. After this. This is Lori Plotkin-Bogart, Kay Family Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. This interview was recorded at a policy conference in Chicago in September while a U.S.-Russian brokered cessation of hostilities was underway in Syria. What are the decisions that the next president is going to have to make quickly at the start of the administration? the next president is going to have to face a reality that is Syria is going to be uh, akin to Iraq in the 1990s in the sense that you have a rump uh, regime. In that case, it was Saddam Hussein. Now we have uh, Bashar al-Assad. We have a Kurdish entity uh, in the northern part of the country that has extreme degree of autonomy. And we have other areas of the country which are outside of the of either of those entities' controls. Now, the difference is, is and this is the big challenge for the next president, that the regime in Damascus is much weaker than Saddam Hussein's regime was. So no matter what happens with the deal between the U.S. and Russia or the cessation of hostilities or the political process, Syria is going to be a divided country for years to come. And putting the pieces of that back together is key to fighting terrorism, it's also key to the regional war, uh, the Cold War between the Iranians and the Sunni Arab countries. And I think it's also key to a future relationship between the U.S. and Russia going forward, which is tumultuous, even though in Syria we, we increasingly see a, a similar battlefield. I think those are the main questions that the next president is going to have to deal with. And the, the, the trend we have is that the Assad regime and President Assad himself is going to hold on smiling as the best option in a field of uh, different players, which are all of which are unpalatable to the United States and its allies. The major problem, though, is that the Assad regime lacks the manpower to retake and hold any of its territories outside of, uh, outside of perhaps around Aleppo and some, some other areas. And this is, I think, the one issue that's not in the news is the regime's lack of manpower. So while Assad is holding on, he's only holding on to about 40% of the country. It's not insignificant. Certainly it's a larger percentage in terms of the overall population. But it's not going to be stable. And the question is, 
how do you get a stable situation, a stable end state? John Kerry talks about that the current peace process is the last chance to get one Syria. Well, we don't necessarily need one Syria. We need a stable Syria that satisfies our national security interests. And I think that's going to be the main, the main challenge for the new president. I think the major um, issue for the new administration in terms of the peace process in Syria is how do you deal with the fact that Assad is holding on while still insisting that we need a transition, a change in governance. Changing in governance in Syria is key to its long-term stability and putting the pieces of it back together again. The opposition is adamant that it will not accept a transition in which Assad is the basis of that transition, but the Russians say that the transition must include Assad. And I think it's also a misunderstanding on behalf of uh, particularly John Kerry's team that they believe that the Russians, uh, they often say, are not, quote, wedded to Assad. That is not true. They do not want Assad to go. It's not because they like Assad. I don't think anybody really likes him, frankly, it's, including his own people, obviously. It's that they just do not see an alternative, and it is, they see this as the basis of their stability. This, and they want this military-to-military cooperation with the United States to carry that out. We see it differently. We see stability coming from good governance so that this doesn't happen again, so that it, Syria doesn't end up being a playground for regional rivalries, which are going to continue well into the, into the next administration and the one after that. Is there a way to offer a way forward for Assad's backers without him, without his family perhaps, but where they would still feel safe in the future Syria is there a way to, to, to get them to stay at the table but just remove him? I think increasingly not, for a couple of reasons. One, the intervention of Russia and Iran in Syria have been substantial and enough to uh, strengthen his uh, support. There's nothing that would create the change, the, the necessity uh, for change. And therefore, I expect that the minorities, the Alawites in particular, who are around the regime, will simply hunker down and they will huddle around Bashar. Now, in the long term, the only way to get rid of him is to pressure him into isolation and to isolate him and ultimately work with those different forces inside the country to remove him. Uh, that is tricky stuff. Uh, it did not work very well for the United States in the 1990s in Iraq. But it, I, I think we have no other choice. Unfortunately, uh, when Syria broke down, it broke into three general parts, regime controlled, opposition controlled and Kurdish controlled. And in each one of these areas, U.S.-designated terrorist organizations are not only present, but they're ascendant and they're dominant. And that's a real challenge going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how you square that at this point without looking at our toolbox and understanding what was it that we didn't do under Barack Obama to affect the situation. And the main issue, not the only one, but the main issue is the use of military force at key moments. Certainly not uh, regime change in Iraq in the 1990s. I think uh, you know, no one wants that. I can't ever see that happening again. But there are other options that have been extended and plan Bs that have been formulated that did involve the use of military force that were not tried. In the last, I'd say, 18 months, some of the, the most common proposals on, on that front, uh, leveraging relatively uh, small, precise uses of, of military force have revolved around either limited uh, no-fly zones, or the creation of safe havens along border regions. 
Are either of those particular approaches, A, viable, could they be done at this point? B, would they make a difference? Or are we looking at now and going forward, are we looking at different species of potential uh, military force operations or, or military leverage? Right. I think what we can, what we have seen are um, either buffer zones being established or de facto buffer zones. In the north, the Turks now have a buffer zone with their parties, and they've created that uh, recently with direct military involvement. There, you can have protection of civilians, also fighting against uh, groups like ISIS. And I expect that that, that that kind of thing will continue. In the south, we have a de facto buffer zone, but it's not with Jordanian forces inside of Syrian territory. It's on the other side. But Jordanian uh, intelligence is very active in, in, uh, in southern Syria and the southern part of the country there. So that's the near term. In the in the long term, a no-fly zone would be key to protecting civilians and being able to enforce these entities. But it would require the United States going up against uh, this uh, against the Syrian military, which is now backed by the Russians. So um, a number of things could happen. We could, in establishing this, and we could establish it, it would risk coming into a military direct military confrontation with the Assad regime. That's fairly easy to handle. A direct military confrontation with Russia, though, could be a possibility, and that has its own risks, including in Syria and elsewhere. But it depends on what the objectives are of the next administration. The targeting of civilians, and particularly the double-tap strikes that the regime used um, by hitting a target, waiting until people run into a building to rescue people, and then hitting it again to kill as many people, combined with the regime's bombing of hospitals, schools, and other facilities, are such uh, horrible examples of violations of international law that I don't think it's something that some presidential candidates uh, will, will, will tolerate. The question will be what would be the real alternative and in what areas. If you established a no-fly zone in Syria, there is, a, there is a problem with that argument. And that is, in the opposition areas, the groups there are mixed with extremists. They call it marbling. And it's uh, referring to the way the maps look um, and how the different uh, groupings of forces look like veins uh, in marble uh, countertops, for example. And the current process is to try and demarble. They call it demarbling is to try and separate those groups, and that's what the key that's what the key part of the U.S.-Russia agreement is uh, currently trying to be implemented. So unless the groups are demarbled successfully, you can't establish a no-fly zone, because you would risk uh, becoming the air force for al-Qaeda. Now, I don't think that it means that we can't protect civilians, but it is a risk. It's a political risk, especially if we have, an if we have further terrorist attacks, which unfortunately are occurring on a more regular basis. Smaller scale, but, but on a more regular basis. Looking back at the American experience in Syria over this last five years, what lessons should be learned by our policymakers to avoid repeating it in the next state that, that comes under, under stress in the Middle East? The key lesson out of uh, this, out of the Syria disaster, is that it's important to follow policy statements with action. If you decide that a president should step aside, you have to work uh, diligently to achieve that and quickly or you risk a country's breaking down and filling up with terrorist organizations, including on the side of the regime. So I think that's, a, that, you know, that's one lesson. 
So if we want to, if we want a, a, a leader to go, we need to be able to put the wherewithal of the United States to achieve that. Uh, you, it, that doesn't mean that we need to invade like Iraq. It, in this case, I think the the strategy of working with allies, the original strategy, was a good one. But without the United States being involved and in a very overt way, it quickly falls down to the agendas of regional countries. So, for example, in the summer of 2012, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, Leon Panetta, David Petraeus, and other members of the Security Cabinet put forward a plan to arm and to organize the Syrian opposition. Uh, that was rejected by the president. Um, it was, I think it was near, nearly unanimous, and the president vetoed it. And what happened is, is that they said, well, our allies can do it instead, but without our essentially direct involvement. So between the summer of 2012 and the spring of 2013, money went to all sorts of groups, including Salafist groups and, and jihadist groups, and, and made it into their hands. And that quickly destabilized so much that by the spring of 2013, the U.S. launched a covert plan to monitor the opposition, essentially do what it is we wanted that Barack Obama rejected in 2012, including to arm them, but was primarily for monitoring purposes. Over time, this was expanded, and it was actually relatively successful. It pushed the Assad regime's forces back, so much so it, it uh, led to led the Russians to intervening uh, in September of 2015 militarily to prop up the regime because of fears that it would collapse. The biggest problem, I think, is when you have a covert program to remove a regime or to pressure a regime, for example, into negotiations, if it does not have an overt political component, it's very difficult for people to follow it. You, I mean, you can't follow what you don't understand. And I think that's another lesson. If whatever we do has to have, must make sense, and it must make enough sense for our allies to follow it. And, and here we can, we can take a lesson from the Russians, actually. You can say what you want about the Russians. Uh, I don't agree on the groups that they, that they consider to be terrorists in Syria. I don't think that they have the same objectives, but they have a plan, and they articulate it to their allies, and it has a certain logic to it. It's not the logic we require, but, it's, but th it has a logic. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why, increasingly, people look to Russia to become a stabilizing force in Syria, even though they're backing up the Assad regime, ironically. So by the time this is all said and done, the U.S. is going to have to take some lessons from its own past failures and also from the successes of its adversaries and come up with its own plan to deal with Syria. The last point is, I think the key issue is uh, concerning decision-making. The president is often, uh, President Obama is often hailed as being a very patient leader. I think that's one way of looking at it. Another way to look at it is, that he waited too long before making any key decisions. And this gets us into, there is an aspect of what's happened in Syria that actually fits into a, a part of the Obama administration's agenda that I think will carry over, certainly to a Clinton administration, I'm not sure to a Trump administration. And that is the signing of the nuclear agreement with Iran. And as part of that agreement, Iran is uh, essentially being um, welcomed into the region diplomatically by the United States and not being opposed militarily by the United States. That is very controversial. It's going to be very hard to maintain. And I think the next president will, will struggle with that uh, throughout his or her first term. How foundational is our policy on Iran to everything else in the Middle East? Is that a first priority, second, third? To what extent do other decisions and strategic attitudes flow from a decision on Iran? The decision on Iran is, I think, 
is in places like Syria are is absolutely vital. So, in that the nuclear agreement is seen as a strategic interest of the United States, and it might well be dealing with their nuclear program is not an easy issue. But the problem, uh, I think, in the Obama administration is that they were worried about Iranian activities elsewhere and worried about antagonizing the Iranians and Iranian-backed groups in places like Iraq and Syria if they were harder on people like Bashar al-Assad. I think a new president's going to have to question that and make clear that our deal on the nuclear program does not uh, hold the rest of our policy hostage in the region. And I think with more Iranian forces, Iranian-backed forces as well, proxies, playing a role in the region, if we don't push back, our allies are going to push back on their own and make the region a less stable place. Looking ahead, January 21st, 2021, either the start of a second administration or the start of a term for a 46th president of the United States, what would you say would be the realistic or achievable best-case scenario for U.S. interests in the Middle East? I think the best-case scenario um, for, the, for the U.S. Uh, would be for this balance between all the different interests in the region. That would be a best-case scenario. And that would allow the U.S. to play a more offshore uh, role. And I think that's uh, actually the goal of President Obama and his, and his strategy with Iran. The problem is, in order to achieve that, you have to get the different parties to, to peacefully coexist. And I just don't see those trends uh, forming. In fact, I see the opposite. Mm. So I think that what is achievable if we were going in this direction, is the, 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 the key question is what to do in the broken states of Syria and Iraq uh, and, and, and Libya and the other countries that have seen so much turmoil and have seen uh, so much terrorist influence. Okay. You know, how do you deal with that in a sustainable way? And so um, solving that problem, I think, requires looking at governance, and I think it requires decentralization in these, in these states. Uh, and the risks that come, go along with it. So we'd be better off accepting that these places are broken and dealing with the, the, with the constituent parts than assuming that we're going to have one president or prime minister in Damascus, Baghdad, or Tripoli uh, anytime soon. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers.